Good morning. It is uh, exciting that we're getting into apocalyptic literature today. I say that with hesitation because when I was organizing how we'd walk through the book of Daniel, I'll be honest, it was a thought that we would just skip this last half. All right, let's just do the narratives. We're comfortable there. There's a lot good, there's good stuff there. And then we can just move on back to the New Testament where it's safe and comfortable. Except for Revelation, because then we get into it again. Um, and I, and I, I'm not the only one who's done that. I've looked at other pastors' outlines. A lot of people do that. Um, but we want to be faithful to teach the whole counsel of God's Word. And so we're going to dive into this. Um, and I, I didn't hesitate because it's not good news, because it's still good news. Hesitation is because of how it's complex and, and so foreign to us. Uh, but it is incredibly important. And specifically, chapter 7 brings together some things for us that are so important. One commentator wrote that in this chapter, we find the single most important thing in the book of Daniel. Another said, one or once convinced of the truth that lies in this chapter and all that it's proclaiming, the reader is in position of the key to history. Sounds pretty, pretty important, right? It's a big deal. Um, and so it's, it's truly an incredible vision that we're going to read about. It, and it's, it really is the history of the world from Babylon to eternity. The establishment of God's kingdom for eternity. All in this one chapter. But, but what does it mean for us here and now and how we live our lives here and now? When we approach the Bible, we need to consider what it meant for the original people how it, how it bridges this gap of history and culture and all these differences. And what does it mean for us? And if we just look at it like a textbook or a history book, or we look at it some weird apocalyptic like zombie deal, if we look at it in these, these beasts or literal or whatever, if we, if we try to view Scripture in all these random ways and we're going to get into the details and try to figure them out and get lost in it all, and it's all pointless. How does it affect how we live our lives every day? What does it mean for us, the people of God here and now in Monroe in 2017 and however long the Crossing Church lasts. What's the point of Daniel chapter 7? That's what we need to get at today. And it's almost as if I need to preach a a sermon before we get into it on what does it mean to read apocalyptic literature? Because if we approach it with the wrong lens, then we're going to immediately drift into a direction we don't need to drift. And this is evident all across the world. It's like this desperate need for everyone who's ever lived to know where is this going to end up. Even if we don't think we're going to see the end, it's like we have to know. We start making up stuff. Is is the sun going to engulf us all? Is there going to be a nuclear war to end it all? Is there going to be another asteroid that hits the earth and finally destroys it? Is the core going to stop rotating in the way it does that makes the earth stand still and everything end or is there really going to be a, a zombie apocalypse? Because that seems to be the theme right now. Science is working hard to prove it's possible. Developing new drugs that make people act weird. It's not going to happen. <laughs> if you're holding out hope for some weird reason, don't worry about it. But even if you are worried about it, the South is a good safe place to be. We have lots of guns and things. So you're good. The truth is, it's going to end. It has to come. Everything comes to an end. So it will end. But how? And what's beautiful is God has given us everything we need to know about how it ends. Who else should we go to but the author of creation? 
the one who's sovereign over all things. Where else would we need to turn? Hollywood's not going to give us what we need to have. God has given us everything we need to know about how the present world comes to an end. And this, it, it's loaded with symbolism. It's perplexed in many ways. These images are so confusing. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of caution to work through these sort of texts to come to understand them. And so if you're confused by it, if you read this chapter before you came in here today, just to kind of prepare yourself and you're like, I don't feel prepared. I don't know what's going on here. Don't, don't feel insecure. You're not alone. In fact, great minds before us have felt similarly about passages like this. Martin Luther, the great reformer, said that of, of this genre, they have a queer way of talking, like people who, instead of proceeding in an ordinary manner, ramble off from one thing to the next so that you cannot make heads or tail of them or see what they are getting at. So if Martin Luther is perplexed by it, we can be comforted, right? There's an entire denomination named after this guy, right? He didn't really get it. Okay, I'm, I'm all right. But, but what's more important, what's more pressing, I think, is rightly understanding apocalypse. So this word apocalypse is very simply translated revelation. It's not devastation and destruction, the end of all things, as We've made it out to be in our current culture. Apocalypse simply means revelation, specifically this unveiling of a, of a transcendent world, this unveiling of something more real than what we perceive as reality and how it connects to this present world. And so it's with right interpretation, we have all that we need. The problem is gaining right interpretation. So this is a prophetic word from God, the creator of all things. And prophecy is a, is a declaration of human events that are in the future. So it's, it's telling of the future. But when God sends a prophet, he's always right. So fortune telling isn't the same thing because they're just making guesses and general ideas and hope that they're right. And if they're wrong, well, it's because you made a decision that changed the future. Well, that's not the case with God. He's, when, he, when there's prophecy from God, it's always what it is. And it happens like it says it's going to happen. However, with apocalyptic prophecy... There's symbolism. So there's not literally going to be these beasts rising from the sea. In fact, we need to see it. The shift in Daniel is going from narrative to apocalypse. We need to see it as a shift from like reading a novel to watching a sci-fi movie. Right? We need to see the shift. There's tons of imagery for a purpose. Daniel wants us to see it. He wants us to feel it. He wants us to be there. Not like hearing a story, but like watching a movie. And we have to appreciate a genre for what it is. And there's a lot of telling of how we see it's the genre that it is as we get into it. But consider like when you, see, when you read a book and the movie's coming out and you're excited about the movie and you go see the movie, what does everyone always say? I like the book better. I mean, it wasn't as good as the book. That it bothers me because I'm a big fan of movies. But it's also totally different. It's a different art form. It's a different genre. Like, yes, there are times when I wish, like, Narnia, the movies, they would be better if, I think specifically of Narnia every time, if they included these things from the book that's, that better, are better pointing to Jesus. I really want it to be more about Jesus. So when you leave out certain things that don't make it about Jesus, I have problems with that. But as, as a movie, it's pretty good. I think the movies are pretty good. For what it is. Some of you are still like, no, whatever. <laughs> Agree to disagree, whatever. We have to appreciate it for what it is. So 
You read a book and your imagination's doing all the work. You see what you see. They're, they're describing, they're using words to describe these pictures, but it's still what you imagine it to be. And it's based on your framework of thinking, your, your worldview. So, you're gonna, so, if, so if you read a novel and it gives you a character and it doesn't tell you what race the person is, it's likely you're going to picture them the race that you are because your imagination's doing the work. When you see a movie, it's whatever they want you to see. You're going to see what it is, and it is what it is. You can't change it. So it's stuck in a different form of art, but it, it is what it is. And apocalyptic literature is, is very much that. We need to let it be what it is. Don't try to make it what it's not. Don't try to take on your perspective and, and make the Antichrist President Obama or the Pope. It's ridiculous, right? People have done that. I didn't just make that up. We have to appreciate it for what it is. One helpful commentary says, the key to interpretation of, this, of images is to find the point of connection and not push the peripheral elements of the comparison. This means we will be left with a gray area in our interpretation. Some of the points of comparison will be obvious, but others will not be. At such points, we need to hold back and not insist on our interpretation. So there are things that are certainly connected. There are going to be things that are obvious. But there's also going to be some stuff that we don't fully understand. And we don't need to get it lost in the minutia and over-spiritualize and, and lean hard on speculation because it's totally unnecessary. We should always avoid being overly suspicious, but we also need to avoid being overly credulous. In other words, we need not demand the definition of every detail in apocalyptic literature because by nature of the genre, those things aren't necessary. We take it for what it is. Now, we must read according to the genre in order to gain our interpretation, uh, but we, we need to not argue irrelevant facts. We need to not get into, well, here's exactly what it means, and here's the timeline, and, well, we have an eclipse happening, so that means Satan's going to show up. He's going to have a wounded head, like these things that Left Behind series makes popular. Like, let's just pump the brakes. What is God telling us? What's the point of this in here? Is it really so we can figure out when the world ends? I don't think so. So, I would even go as far to say, as far to say that, that it's irrelevant to know the precise meanings of these images. We're going to get into it. I'll tell you what I think they are, but I think it's irrelevant. Any determination to obtain knowledge of specifics will drown out the overall purpose and meaning. So let's not be so determined to do that. I really, I put, I want it to preach this part of the sermon because I really want, I think it's necessary. So many people have so many wild ideas of what these things mean. And it's totally a distraction from the enemy. Let's unite under Christ the King and be about this work he's called us to be about and trust his sovereignty in all of it. And if in the end, We have an interpretation that applies to us as well as the people of God who originally got this word from God, then we we know it's closer to the truth. But if it if it doesn't apply to the people during the time of Daniel and it doesn't point us to Jesus and it doesn't instruct and equip and encourage the saints of God on the mission of God for the growing and establishing of the kingdom of God and ultimately for the glory of God, if we can't get there with the text, then we're missing it. 
So if all we get out of it is, this is who this guy is, and this is who this guy is, and here's when the world's going to end, what's the point? Let's, let's start there. Let's have that framework and that understanding when we go into this open-minded, whatever might come in the next few weeks. Let's just take it for what it is. All right? Can we agree to do that? Otherwise, I'm not preaching the sermon. We, all right. Okay, so Daniel chapter 7. That was about 15 minutes. Don't count that towards the sermon time if you time me. It's just now starting. Okay? So it'll be like, you went an hour. It was only 45 minutes, all right? All right, so right away we'll notice that we're back in the time of Belshazzar. Apocalyptic literature also doesn't follow any necessary timeline, but we've progressed through Daniel to the end of his life. A new kingdom has taken over, but now this vision that Daniel is having, and it's given directly to Daniel, it's not an interpretation of someone else's dream. It's during the the first year of Belshazzar, and we're going to see that right here in verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and vision of his head as he lay in his bed. So it it could possibly be just a dream, um, but as we'll see, he kind of gains some sense of consciousness in the dream, and he starts acting on his own behalf. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared. So here's the start of it. I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. The four great beasts and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. Notice, notice the passive language. So it was raised up. And these beasts aren't just doing their own thing. Someone's in control here. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this, I looked, and behold, another, like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this, I saw in the night visions, saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. This term great things is is boastful, it's arrogant, it's not positive, it's not a quality, Uh, it's Speaking much of oneself. So let's try, before we go on, let's try to get a picture of this unimaginable scene uh, because these are beasts that don't exist. So first of all, for, for the Jew in this period of time, uh, this, the different parts of different animals making up one beast would be unclean. It would immediately be seen as evil. Even more so, the depths of the sea 
And this is a crazy sea. The winds are blowing. The depths of the sea, this dark scene, these beasts are rising. And in ancient literature, including the Bible, a place of chaos is the sea. This is where evil dwells. It's where evil rules. And so anything rising up out of this sea is certainly, without a doubt, perceived as evil. But also considering what's rising out of the sea, I think we can certainly see these are evil beings. Yet despite the evil... Despite the fact that they are clearly here to to cause destruction, we are to understand God is the one stirring up the deep. Remember, we talked about passive divine voice last week. This This is the same voice. This is someone's in control here. Someone's commanding the bear devour. Someone's bringing the beasts out of the sea. Someone is doing these things. We're never told who it is. We're left to assume, but because of the way it's written, we understand it's certainly the one who has all throughout Daniel been proclaimed to be the sovereign one in control of everything. God is actively rising those, raising those up who, who will stand in opposition of him. He's empowering them. He's giving them dominion. So this is crazy and it's terrifying, but very much so our sovereign God is in total control. So what do we know so far, these, these four beasts? All right, so here's, here's what we have. A lion with wings of an eagle that are plucked, and he's given the posture and the mind of a man. So that one's self-explanatory. I'm just kidding. I'm kidding. And then we have a hungry, the second one, a hungry lopsided bear with bones in his teeth, right? And then we have a four-headed, four-winged leopard, And then this fourth beast, there's no animal description that's sufficient. We see that he's terrifying, he's dreadful, he's exceedingly strong. He has iron teeth, ten horns, and then three of those horns are uprooted and a a little horn comes up in the the place of those three. And and this this little horn has a mouth and it has eyes and it speaks great things. It's braggadocious. So... It's laughable, but it's also scary. So feel the fear more than you feel the humor. All right, so these are representative of kings and kingdoms. This isn't conjecture. Daniel tells us this later on in this chapter. He asks a bystander, an angel, what's going on here? And the angel interprets, these are kings and these are kingdoms. So immediately we can build these connections. Remember the chiastic form in which the book of Daniel was written. We talked about this way back in introductory week. This, this form is... Chapter 1 lines up with 8 through 12. So we have these outside and they're connected. And then we come in and we have another connection here with chapter 2 and chapter 7. And then 3, which is Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And 6, which was Daniel Lion's Den, some obvious connections. And then 4 and 5, the fall of Nebuchadnezzar, the fall of Belshazzar. Those are obvious connections. So we have this, this form in the book of Daniel. So chapter 7 should be necessarily connected to chapter 2, in which we see a, a statue built of four metals that were told in interpretation given by Daniel. These represent kingdoms. And with that understanding and with the whole of Scripture, we can make some clear distinctions as to who these beasts are. But we're not going to get a lot into why certain scholars believe certain things about it because there is a lot of disagreement and, and it's, it's really not necessary. But the first beast, uh, most scholars, in fact, almost all scholars agree is Nebuchadnezzar. 
and that is the Babylonian reign. And this chapter parallels this first chapter, so this golden head. We know that's Nebuchadnezzar. This golden head of the statue is this beast, this lion with the wings of an eagle. Now, uh, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah prophesy about Nebuchadnezzar. Jeremiah describes him as a lion, and Ezekiel describes him as an eagle. If that weren't enough, there are details um, that we can consider when Nebuchadnezzar was uh, humiliated. Remember, his hair grew out like the feathers of an eagle. And, and then he was restored by God. And so we see even the restoration in this chapter 7 uh, picture of the, the wings being plucked and him being upright like a, a man and given the mind of, of a man. So Nebuchadnezzar was restored in these ways. So we, we see these things pointing. And if it wasn't enough that we have all of that, the reason it's, it's so much conclusive is because this is being written after Nebuchadnezzar by Daniel, who kind of already sees these things, but he's writing what he has seen in the account. But Babylon, the city, is known for these statues that guard the gates and line the streets of lions with wings. So is that enough? <laughs> I think so. But remember, let's hold that loosely because it's not totally necessary that we make it Nebuchadnezzar. But we see... A, we see enough to say there's a very real sense in which the spiritual apocalyptic things going on are connected to the present world for Daniel. And then we get into where there's a little more disagreement about the other beasts, but I'll tell you the one where I, where I tend to land. The bear, the second beast that's raised on one side is the Medo-Persians who just took over after Babylon. Medo-Persians uh, were known as these two kingdoms in one, the Medes and the Persians. However, they're often just referred to as the Persians because Persians were much stronger, much larger kingdoms. So this the lopsidedness of the bear, the, the, the raised one side, the Persian side. And they were overtaken by the Greeks. So the Greek empire, this leopard with four wings and four heads, um, this immediately we were drawn to the attention of this leopard is fast and the wings give it even more speed and the heads give it more uh, reach. And so they can see all around. It can get where it's going. And we know that the, the Greek empire not only grew to be powerful, but it grew rapidly. It overtook the Medo-Persian empire almost with ease, led by Alexander the Great. At a very young age, within 10 years, he completely conquered this kingdom. And, then, and the, as the legend goes, he was like, now what do I do? And so he just started partying a lot and he died very young. And as it happens, the, the kingdom was given over to four governors. These are well-known governors. There were actually five. The fifth one was insignificant. The four that, that are known throughout history could be, not saying they have to be, represented by these four heads as the Greeks ruled the world. And that came to an end as a much more powerful and vicious, exceedingly strong kingdom rose the Romans. And the Roman Empire, um, with its iron teeth and ten horns, devoured the land. It took over the Greek Empire, crushing it and crushing it into pieces. And this Roman Empire was strong and long-lasting and saw many rulers. Ten being the number uh, in Scripture, tens the number of fullness. So there's as many. So seven is complete, but ten is full. In, in Old Testament language, they don't really have, when they're talking about numbers, so they use 10, and they use 1,000, and they use 100, and they use 10,000. So 10,000 really is the biggest one-word number we have in the Old Testament. Uh, and later we'll see uh, that, so you can think of times where you've seen 10,000 times 10,000. That's just saying there's a lot. It's not necessarily 
a number, right? But there's a lot of rulers of the Roman Empire. However, there have been many scholars who have drawn these connections between the specific rulers and the ten horns. And you can do that with the Romans. You can even do that with the Greeks. And there's some who believe that's who that kingdom is. And the Medo-Persians were separated into two kingdoms. Take it how you want to take it. Doesn't, doesn't bother me at all. But the establishment of this kingdom, and we'll cover the little horn more specifically in just a bit. The establishment of this kingdom is, is in significant in the history of the world and in history of the scriptures because it was during the Roman Empire that Jesus entered the scene. But in all of this, as all of these beasts have their dominion and have their rule, the Ancient of Days, that's the Lord Almighty, is, is the God of judgment. He's the ruler of all creation. So we'll pick it up in verse 9. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head was pure like wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousands served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. So God is the Ancient of Days. Uh, this is an Old Testament term in Aramaic. It literally translates the, the old one, the ancient one. Right, so he's an old dude, uh, but it points. It significantly points to eternity. So he has no days, but the ancient of days is the Lord Almighty, and He is holy like none other. So we have all we have the scene of all this dark beast rising from the darkness of the sea, and and they're vicious and scary to Daniel. Like he's he's shocked by what he's viewing, and especially as we'll see the little horn and the things he's saying. We don't know specifically what he's saying, but we know that it bothers Daniel. That he's disturbed in a way that he, he takes initiative to ask someone what's going on in just a minute. But we have this picture of this darkness. And then we see, not, not in the ocean, but we see among the clouds, we see up, up above, we see sovereign over it all, this one dressed in all white, the Ancient of Days. This purity, this holiness set apart from all the chaos. And he has, he has white hair like wool, right? So he, he's being distinctly different from the darkness. And, and not only is he separated in that way, but he is powerful. And we see that in his judgment. And the judgment comes in fire, remember. Fire judges, but also it's, it's multifaceted. This judgment could also be... Uh, this purification, this fire could also be good for the saints. It's judgment for the wicked. And this God sits on his throne of fire. This is incredible. And for some reason, this throne has wheels. We threw that in there. But we should get this picture of a chariot. So this is a mobile God. He's bringing his judgment to us. And he can go wherever he wants to bring that judgment. And the fire is issued out before him to take down all those who would stand against him. So, so we referenced Narnia earlier. Think of, think of the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe as the people fight against the wicked one, as the people fight against the queen. There's struggle, and there's some who suffer, and there's some who are overtaken. But when Aslan shows up, it's just over. That scene was like two seconds long in the movie, right? It's just over because he has always been in control, he has dominion, he has authority. 
And there are many who serve this God. There are many who stand before him. Thousands and thousands. 10,000 times 10,000 are under his judgment. Verse 11. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. So this is, this is attention drawn to the, the words of this horn. And as I looked, the beast was killed. And its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, so Daniel keeps saying, I saw in the night visions. That means I'm still looking, I'm still watching. He's fixed his eyes on the scene. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and the kingdom. And all people's nations and languages stood or should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So we're about to get into a bit of interpretation that's provided in the text. um, But let's do a little breakdown here. These beasts, one after another, have been knocked down by the the beast that comes up after them. They've been knocked down and overtaken. So you consider if it is the the Babylonians being overtaken uh, by the Medo-Persians or the Medo-Persians overtaken by the Greek Empire, Greek Empire by the Roman. If it is that, then we can see this way in which they're engulfed. They're just included. They lose their dominion, though they still have their lives. But when... The Ancient of Days comes to take down the beast. He delivers his body up to the fire. He destroys him. It's over. He doesn't just take his dominion. He completely destroys him. And apparently attention needs to be drawn to the, the loud mouth little horn. Right? Apparently it's because of the words he's saying that, that the Ancient of Days arises and destroys him. And, and there's little room to decide, okay, who is the Ancient of Days? It's very clearly God. It's Yahweh, the Holy One, the Most High. And, and the stone from which no human hands have formed in chapter 2 as being, is being hurled at this statue in chapter 2. That's what we're seeing happen here in chapter 7. The Ancient of Days is coming before these kingdoms and He's hurled this stone. And the stone we know grows to be the Kingdom of God as per the interpretation of chapter 2. And so this new kingdom is overtaking these other kingdoms, encompassing them all, and, and removing the dominion. And the dominion is handed over to one that comes as the Son of Man. Now, who is this Son of Man? Who receives this dominion? Who's in charge of this everlasting kingdom? I don't think you have to do much searching to find Jesus often refers to himself as the Son of Man, for the very purpose of making this connection. So He is making known, He is this one who has dominion over all creation for all eternity. Specifically, we walk through the book of Mark. Mark speaks of it a lot, almost exclusively refers to Himself as the Son of Man. Jesus does. And as we see in in the Gospels as a whole, this Greek term, Son of Man, is used 81 times to describe Jesus. We, need, we have a lot of evidence that, to back this up. So there are some who 
are, are more liberal scholars who would disagree and say it's other people in Scripture or other, other rulers who came along or, or Judaism sometimes gives credit to, to Maccabean revolt as standing up against the, the uh, rulers of the world at the time that would take down this, these kingdoms. Um, but we need not do that when Jesus says, this is who I am. He is the one who's come to do all that he said he would do. And this is why the disciples are so often confused by what is Jesus doing? Are you going to establish the kingdom now? They think it's a very literal, real kingdom because of their understanding of these kingdoms that have come, been overtaken, and now we're in Rome. Okay, Jesus is here now. The Ancient of Days clearly has sent him. He is the Son of Man. So let's establish this kingdom already, right? And Jesus tells them time and again, the kingdom is here. I am that one. I am the Son of Man. This connection is made. So what's he doing? Why hasn't he done it yet, right? There's obviously a much bigger plan. So the interpretation, verse 15. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. So he's, he's caught off guard by all that's going on. He, even though it's ended in a good way with the Son of Man, having dominion. He's, the beasts have distracted him. The little horn has, has taken all his attention. So he approached one who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he's approached an angel, a messenger of the Lord. And that's all the angel means. Side note, messenger of the Lord. So he approached this angel. This is one of the thousands standing before watching the scene. So Daniel sees this one and, and assumes he'll have more knowledge than he has. So he goes and he asks him, What's going on? So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever and ever, forever and ever. So this is a good note to end on. We should just let it be where, where it is. It, it should be okay. These are kingdoms that are going to rule the world, but... As the messenger says, those who follow the Most High are going to receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. That's good news, but it's not sufficient for Daniel. His curiosity is still there. As he considers what he's just seen, he asks more detailed questions so that he can get more detailed answered, and in so doing, provides us with more details of his vision. Then I desire to know the truth about the fourth beast. So specifically, what's going on with this crazy fourth beast? It looks like nothing I've never seen. Which was different from all the rest. Exceedingly terrifying. With its teeth of iron and claws of bronze. And which devoured and broke into pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head. And the other horn that came up before which... The three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth and spoke great things. And that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them until the Ancient of Days came. And judgment was given to the saints the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. So this is what's troubling Daniel. He tells you what's troubling him. There's this beast that seems to have so much authority. It's so vicious and terrifying and it's crushing everyone. It's even overtaking the saints of the Lord. And they're being handed over to him. And this little horn stands out. This, of the giant beast with its ten horns, what stands out the most 
is this one little horn with a loud mouth boasting of himself. What is of, what is, what's up with all of this? What's going on? What does this mean? And thus the messenger answers, as, as for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth and trample it down and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High and shall wear out the saints of the Most High and shall think to change the times and the laws, and they shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and destroyed to the end. The kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion shall serve, his dominions shall serve and obey him. So this, he, he ends this with good news, yet still, verse 28, here's the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me. My color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. So there we have it. That's all of it. And Daniel's left feeling overwhelmed by what he's seen. Even after hearing the messengers say, look, it's going to get bad, but good is coming. There's reason to rejoice. The one who's sovereign over it all has always been sovereign and is still in control. And he is sending one to have dominion over it all. There's hope. There's reason for hope. Yet still, there's this anxieties. His color changes. It's like he's seen a ghost. And he keeps these matters in his heart. Daniel's just learned that these 70 years in exile aren't the end. There's more suffering to come for the people of God. In fact, there's more kingdoms to come. Because remember, they're still in Babylon. There's more kingdoms to come that will rule over the people of God. In fact, there's a kingdom that's coming somewhere down the road that will be so vicious that it would stand against the people of God and destroy them and crush them and wear them out. And they'll be given into the hands of this king, this ruler. There's incredible difficulties for the people of God. Getting home from Babylon isn't going to be an easy path. And deliverance is promised. Yes, it's for sure. But for the case of those waiting for Christ, there's there's anxiety. There's They're stressed. They're dismayed. They're overwhelmed as Daniel is here, greatly alarmed by what he's just seen. And for those of us awaiting the second coming of Christ, it's the same. There are kingdoms of this world who war against the church, who war against the people of God and cause us great pain. Our brothers and sisters throughout history and around the world even today are suffering. Their very lives are being taken from them. They're beaten, disowned by their families for what they believe. But for the people of God, apocalyptic literature should help us see the evil in the world and at the very same time bring us comfort and peace and confidence in the power of our God who has never lost control. And it should point us to Christ who has dominion over everything. For those opposed to God, there's, there's reason for trepidation. There's reason to be fearful because the wrath of God is aimed at them. This fire of judgment is aimed at them. But for us, we should have peace. So tell me how we are to have peace then. 
So reading through this, seeing how Daniel is at the end of it. How are we not supposed to be confused and afraid and overwhelmed? Would God put this chapter in here to confuse us and overwhelm us and cause us anxiety? Certainly not. So how is it that we're left feeling this way? Or the many trials in our lives, maybe not kings that are coming after you, but the temptation that distracts you, the ruler of, this, of the air, Satan, as he would try to destroy us and kill us with the distractions of the American church face. We don't face the, the strict persecutions that would put our lives at stake, but, but it's easier for Satan to distract us with stuff. Materialism and consumerism rule our hearts. We're so easily drawn to the things of this world. Or even if we have convictions against those things, We're controlled by our own legalism. We're controlled by our desire to be in control. And and our insecurities rule our hearts. Because we know we're not good enough. But we think we are. This anxiety, the weight, you probably can feel it right now. This weight that we feel when we consider the world and all the trouble and hurricanes and nuclear war on the edge. I mean, it could happen any day now. Who knows? There's all these reasons to, to feel overwhelmed. And if, if we allow our hearts to go there, it very easily can go there. If we don't believe our God has dominion, if we don't believe the Son of Man is in control, it's very easy to go there. But He's given us hope. The Lord has given us hope by showing us exactly how this comes to an end. The Son of Man has dominion. The Ancient of Days rules over everything with sovereignty. He never lost control. Even as the beasts of the world rise, even as kings of this world have ruled over the people of God in ways that are horrific, God is in control. He was the one bringing up the beasts. He was the one handing his people over to these kingdoms. Who is this God? What mystery is there? It's okay to admit this is is confusing. This is weird. How am I to understand this suffering? How am I I to understand that God, my Father, the one who loves me, would allow such horrific things? In fact, He doesn't just allow them, but He is actively in control of them. Now, Maybe in in life circumstances we want to deny that and shove that down because it's very difficult for us to, to fully comprehend the sovereignty of God have all these hesitations when it comes to his sovereignty, as if we have to attempt to to soften it, to make it more palatable, because a loving God would never do that. We redefine what love is. Well, God is love, and he hands his people over to death by the hands of the rulers of the world. Both are true, but how? And if you're you're hearing me ask this question, how, and you're thinking he's going to tell me how, sorry. But I know it is what it is. And I know our God is in control. And all of our anxious living, desperate to control our lives, to put out the fires and to keep hope alive, are going to fail us in the end. We must see, we must know, we must believe Christ has dominion. This word dominion is the same word we would use for any dictator in history. Dominion. 
He's got all the power, all the authority. Everything is absolutely His. For eternity, supremely, He reigns. All of it's His. He's a monarch. He's a dictator. He's clearly sovereign and completely sovereign over everything. Everything. I believe it was Spurgeon who said there's not a dust particle floating through the air that God isn't aware of and controlling. Just consider some material object. Just look at your hand or your Bible or whatever's before you. Consider the atoms that make it up and the subatomic particles rotating it and within it. God is in control of every electron circling every atom in the entire universe. Not just creating it, not just allowing it to happen, setting it in motion and step back and watching it. He is actively controlling all of it. Everything. He's doing it. And, and he clothes the flowers of the field and he feeds the birds of the air. All of it's his. And as the people of God, we should be comforted by that. That every pain you endure, every second of suffering, is at the hands of your Father who loves you and is for your good and His glory. You can trust Him. But do we trust His dominion? Do we honor Him? Because this this understanding of Christ has dominion doesn't just come with control and power. It comes with honor, this submission out of a desire to trust Him because we know His love for us. Yes, He's powerful and He's an authority, but He's to be honored and respected and cherished because as the church, as the people, we are to see our God is for our good and everything He does is for our good. Everything is broken in creation. Everything is, isn't how it should be and Christ is at work restoring it all. In fact, he uses us to do that. So we come to this point where I explain to you how, how the Vatican City is within Rome and the Roman Empire still technically rules in the spirit world and the Pope must be the Antichrist. I'm just, it's ridiculous, right? And considering all of it, it's ridiculous to think we need to find those details. But what's certainly true is Christ came while the Roman Empire ruled, never once flinched, at any religious ruler or governmental ruler, stood before them, took on all the accusations, and then was nailed to a cross by them. In all of that, he was in control and he delivered himself up for us, for you, and for them. All of it in his control. So that he could be seated on the throne. And we have this already not yet gospel. Because God has always been in control. The ancient of days has always been sovereign. But the dominion was given to Christ. Following his death, burial, resurrection and ascension. In fact this ascension that we see in in the gospels. And in, in the book of Acts. Where we see that he was lifted into the clouds. And he disappeared by the clouds. And then we're left there with the disciples. Like okay now what do we do? And the Spirit comes and He fills them and, and they go about and the church is established and the kingdom is, is continuing and it's here and it's now and it's continuing and it's growing constantly. But what we don't see in Acts that we see here in chapter 7 of Daniel is the other side of the ascension. Daniel is with the Ancient of Days and he sees the, the Son of Man ascended, brought in by a cloud, right? 
And he goes before the Ancient of Days and he receives dominion over all. And has already, not yet gospel, has already been accomplished. Victory is already his. He's already in dominion over all things. His kingdom is already here. It's already being established. But there will come a day where, where consummation comes and once and for all, the, the enemies of the world, the beasts as they are, will be destroyed by God. The little horn, this, this anti-Christ, this little horn who speaks boastfully of his own power and his rule and speaks down on the people of God and who, who have the people of God delivered up to him to be destroyed. This enemy of the Lord will be destroyed by the King of Kings in the end. And there's hope there, though he now for some period of time has some control. And there's connections we can draw to the book of Revelation and into apocalyptic literature in the New Testament. The connections we can see who exactly is this Antichrist. What exactly does it all mean? But what's certain, what we can be sure of, is that this Antichrist will be killed by the Son of Man. He will be destroyed by Jesus when he returns and finishes this work once and for all. And we see some pictures of this in the New Testament. First John uh, John writes about this a lot. Um, he's the one that wrote the book of Revelation, but also in 1 John he writes in chapter 2, verse 18, and also verse 22, children, that's us. It is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come. Verse 22, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. And then First John chapter 4, verse 3. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world already. So there, there was, there is, and there will be suffering for the people of God brought on by the ideologies and the rulers of the world who stand as Antichrists. There are many, there have been many, and there may in one day be one. There may be one possessed by the devil himself who rules over the world, but maybe not. It's not necessary for the message, for the purpose of this chapter that we determine who the Antichrist is. And never in Scripture is that necessary. What, the reason it's here is so that we'll know it's coming. There's tribulation ahead. There's suffering to endure. I don't prescribe to a pre-tribulation rapture because I don't believe it's clear in, in chapter 7 of Daniel that we're going to be taken out of the world to, to be delivered from this tribulation. In fact, I think it's abundantly clear we're going to remain here and suffer through the tribulation for it's not the wrath of God. It's Him handing us over to the enemy for a time so that He can come to our rescue in a way that would be far more magnificent than it could ever be if he just took us out and spared us the suffering in a way that we would better understand his goodness after we endure the evils of the suffering. In a way that we would see how glorious the Ancient of Days is when we get to fix our eyes like Daniel on the beasts of this world. When we hear the mocking, the boastful mocking of the Antichrist. Whatever the case is, we know how this thing ends. Second Thessalonians, Paul writes in chapter 2, which we read before we worshiped, just, just verse 7 and 8, we see, For the mystery of the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains, 
or, or he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. So, so you can you can consider this to be the Holy Spirit. You can also consider this to be the Archangel Michael. I, I tend to fall in that direction. I, I strongly encourage you study this material. It's fascinating in many ways. Uh, but we don't have time to go into all the details of it, and some of it will be covered uh, in weeks to come. But whoever it is restraining the evil one, as, it, as we see in Thessalonians, um, the lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. He'll be removed. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Jesus is just going to show up. In Revelation 20 and Revelation 13, we see a more a described picture of this. The lawless one is the Antichrist, and he is freed. He's released to, to wreak havoc until Christ comes and destroys him. So even if we disagree on the specifics of prophecy and, and end times and eschatology, we can see clearly here this will be fulfilled. Christ will rule. And Daniel wants his audience to respond in this way. He wants his readers to know a sovereign God and find what we need to stand firm with peace in the midst of any tribulation that may come. He wants us to resist persecution even unto death. And he gives us pictures of that in the narratives of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He gives us a picture of that in his own story of the lion's den. But we, we see clearly in this, in this vision of future things that we are the people of God delivered to the enemy, but to stand firm in the face of the furnace, in the face of the lion's den, to stand firm knowing the fire of God comes not to destroy us and judge us, but to refine us. And then we see the proud kings of the earth brought down low and humbled and then destroyed as the Son of Man is on His throne forever forever and ever. Whether these are physical kingdoms or spiritual ones, whether they're kingdoms that have already come or ones yet to come, isn't totally relevant. One thing that's for sure is human beings are vicious beasts without our God ruling our hearts. Whoever it is, it could be you, if not for the grace of God, to make you his own. Uh, even even the, the evil beasts of our modern world, even the Hitlers and the Stalins, they're, they're beasts led by the desires of their hearts because they don't have the grace of God to have new hearts. And this could, could very well be us, but the King of Kings has conquered the hearts of His people. He's given us salvation to rejoice in. He's destroyed the kingdoms of man once and for all, and He will come and shut the mouth of the Antichrist once and for all. And John gives us a description of this in Revelation 13. And that's a combination of a beast that we see in chapter 7. So he says he has parts of a lion and of a leopard and of a bear. So we see the beasts of the the world very much are continuing. They're allowed to live. They no longer have dominion over all because that belongs to Christ. They continue on and they're allowed to live. And they, they come together to stand against the people of God in the end. But there comes a time of great tribulation for the people of God in which the beast does whatever he wants. And it may get worse for us. It may not. I told you I don't believe there's a pre-tribulation rapture, but I'm willing to change my mind in the air. I'm hopeful that that's the case. I'm okay with that. 
I just don't think Scripture points us in that direction. But there will come a time when Christ returns. And that, that time will be a glorious day. He's coming back, not like He came in before, humble as a baby in a manger, but as the Lord of lords and the King of kings with a sword in His hand and fire in His eyes to take down the enemy. And this chapter 7 of Daniel isn't primarily about that enemy, but it's about this holy God who has dominion over the enemy. And it's about the people of God who join in the kingdom of God forever. That's verse 27. And as the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdom under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints, the most high. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall, be ser- shall serve and obey Him. It's His. Now He reigns. He reigns now in our hearts as we're drawn together as the body of Christ to continue this mission. We're to be at work establishing this kingdom no different than, than the army of, of any kingdom that's come before. No different than Alexander the Great taking over the world in, in 10 years We are the people of God, the soldiers of God, this army that's overtaking the world for the kingdom of God to the glory of our king. Only we have a God who already has won the war. We have a king who has dominion over all of it already. And he rules in our hearts. His kingdom is here and now. And it's it's still to come and it will be for eternity. So as we endure, let's fight this fight. Let's make war against our sin. And let's let's stand against the enemy of the air as he attempts to overtake those of the world. And know that we have long lost brothers and sisters. They may be your neighbors. They may be your co-workers, your classmates. Let's fight for their souls, trusting that our God has already won the war. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the craziness that is apocalyptic literature, for the ways in which it fascinates us and and even for the ways in, in which we're confused and caught off guard and alarmed as Daniel was. But ultimately, I praise you that you can comfort us and give us peace knowing that you have accomplished everything necessary in the cross and resurrection. That in your ascension, you have been given dominion over everything and you rule our hearts and you rule our lives and we are your body at work in this world to see the kingdom of God continue to grow until the day you come And make this gospel complete. Taking down the enemies of the world. And so as we consider our anxious lives. The many things that trouble us. Most of which is is just selfish. Our our own desires to control things. And anxieties that come when we see that we can't. We confess to you God that we, we need not be in control. Because you are. We confess to you that we need not seek satisfaction in the world because we find all we need in Christ. Every comfort, every amount of peace, every joy in Christ. And we ask that you would open our eyes to the things we don't see. Give us belief where we fail to believe. And let us lean not on our own works, not on our own understanding, but on Christ Father, help us as we're so easily distracted and we'll leave here and be easily sucked back into our own worlds. Let us remember we have one another. Let us remember we have your spirit. 
And let us believe in the sovereignty of our good and gracious Father.